0: Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I know those of you who are regulars here at City Church have brought your Bibles in some form, a hard copy or a digital copy, because that's what we do here at City Church. We bring our Bibles because we're going to study those Bibles. So please, if you would, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're new here, we'll put the verses up on the screen for you so that you can follow along too. We're in a series called The Women in Jesus' Past, and as provocative as that title sounds, all that we're really doing is looking at four of Jesus' female ancestors. The Gospel writer Matthew records on the very first page of the New Testament, and right before the Christmas narrative, Jesus' genealogy. And By including these women in Jesus' genealogy, what Matthew is saying is that if we're going to understand the meaning of Christmas... We have to look closely at the stories of the women who are included in Jesus' genealogy. So far, we've looked at a woman by the name of Tamar, a woman by the name of Ruth, and next week, we'll conclude on Christmas Eve with the story of Jesus' mother, Mary. Today, we're going to look at a woman who Matthew refers to in a very different way than Tamar and Ruth and even Mary. See if you can figure out what it is. This is straight from Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. Don't turn there. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's on the first page of the New Testament. Can you see what's different about this from Tamar and Ruth and even Mary? See what's different? That's right. There's no name. All of the other women are listed by name in Jesus' genealogy, but in this case, we only know this woman as Uriah's wife. Why? 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 Because here's the thing. We actually do know her name. Her name is Bathsheba. So why not mention her name? Why doesn't Matthew just say that? Why didn't they just say Bathsheba? Well, I'll come back to that in a little bit, but see if you can guess. See if you can guess why Matthew does that. As we read along this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's start in verse 1. In the spring... At the time, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, uh, I, just, I, you know, I never like to take it for granted that everybody here knows who these people are. I, I recognize some of you uh, probably have no idea who we're talking about here. This David that the text is referring to is the king of Israel, God chose David himself to be the king. He even said that the reason that he chose him was because David was a man after God's own heart. That's a pretty amazing commendation of someone from God himself. David was the greatest king that Israel ever had until Jesus, the Messiah, who, by the way, is a direct descendant of David. Joab here, well, he's the commanding officer of David's army. The Ammonites were the enemies of Israel. And I don't know. I don't. I don't know if you can see it. I don't know if you picked it up. But underneath the surface, there seems to be a criticism of David here. Did you see it? He says, "In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war," and then he concludes by saying, in this last ominous little line, but David stayed home to catch up on his Netflix." It's there. It's subtle. It's in the Hebrew. It's not maybe easy for you to see, but. It's there. Okay? There's A little little jab at David here, isn't there? Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittites. So there she is. This is the woman that Matthew doesn't refer to by name, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now now just imagine the scene for just a moment. It's spring, love is in the air, it's nighttime, the sky is dark, the air is warm, stars twinkling in the sky, a slight breeze blowing through the city, and all of the men are off at war except David. Was up on the roof of his palace, stretching his legs, when he sees a woman bathing, and he sends one of his people to find out about her. Now, this is a man after God's own heart. God has said that about him himself. This is a man after God's own heart. What do you suppose David has in mind? Like, here's what I'd like to think. I'd like to think that David just, he just wants to find out how he can pray for Bathsheba. That's what I'd like to think, right? (laughs) Or maybe he just wants to check in on her and find out, you know, how she's doing. Her husband's off at war. He just wants to know, how can he help her? How is she doing? I'd like to think that. But how many of you think that's really what is up, what's going on here? Yeah, nobody. You guys aren't nearly as naive as I am. Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And then there's this editorial note that she had purified herself from her uncleanness. I'll explain that in just a minute. In spite of the fact that he knows that she's married, this man after God's own heart sends messengers to get her and understand something. Her husband isn't just some anonymous husband, someone David has never heard of before. David knows Uriah. Um, Even if he doesn't know Bathsheba, he knows Uriah. Uriah is one of David's mighty men, known for his bravery and courage as a soldier. He's protected David before. But in spite of this, David sleeps with Bathsheba. And then, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Okay, now I just want to stop here for a few moments because the story, this story is eerily similar to what's happening today in our culture with the hashtag Me Too movement. You know what I'm talking about? You know, women who've kept silent for years, even decades, are coming forward now with, to talk about powerful men who sexually harassed or even sexually abused them. And what's fascinating is that what almost all of them say is that the reason that they didn't come forward sooner is that they were afraid that no one would believe their stories or worse, that they would blame, that they would even blame them instead of the man who did it. This is what has happened to Bathsheba throughout history. When you think of her name, what most people think of is a seductress. I asked you a minute ago to see if you could figure out why Matthew doesn't refer to Bathsheba by name in Jesus' genealogy. And I can imagine that many of you have come to the conclusion that Matthew is kind of slut-shaming her. That this is a woman who, with her beauty and with her powers of seduction and her exhibitionist tendencies, overcame David's resistance and got him to sleep with her. I can imagine that's what many of you are thinking, but that is actually not what happened at all. There's absolutely nothing in this passage to suggest that Bathsheba is guilty of anything except being attractive and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Bathsheba's a victim of a very powerful man who exploited his power to use her for his sexual pleasure. And out of fear, she stayed silent. Now, now why do I say that? You know, where do I see that in the text here? That Bathsheba is innocent and that David is innocent is David is the perpetrator. Well, first, just, just think about this. These verses and the rest of chapter 11 are all about David. David is the initiator of all the action in the story. Look at the verbs. He saw, he sent, he slept with her. Not they slept together. Not they slept with each other. It's he slept with her. Second, I want you to notice that when the text says that he sent messengers to get her, the word that's translated get can actually be translated to seize or to take, suggesting that she has no choice in this whatsoever. Third, remember that people didn't have their own water supply in their homes back then. It's it's not like she had her own personal outdoor shower And she just, you know, slipped outside through her double glass doors, uh, disrobed, and then started bathing in the nude in a seductive way, protected from being seen by anyone but David by her backyard fence. That doesn't happen back in that culture. She was likely bathing at a public place, commonly used by people, for doing what she's doing here. Fourth, the phrase that is translated, very beautiful. It says The text says that she is very beautiful. That phrase is used in many other places in the Old Testament in which there's not even a hint of nudity or seduction involved. Nothing here even suggests that she was naked or even partially closed. In fact, the text tells us, that little editorial note, it tells us that she was purifying herself from her ritual, uncleanness. This was a religious rite that she was performing. Bathsheba cared about the law of God. She's probably not bathing in the way that you and I think of bathing. This is a religious rite that she's performing. Fifth, even if she is naked or partially clothed, notice when she does it. She's waited until nighttime to do this. And sixth, all the men are at war. So she seems to have taken care not to be seen by any other men. She's doing this in a way that no other men would be able to see her. Only David, with his penthouse vantage point, would have been able to see her. And you see, add all of this up, and what the text is very subtly telling us is that Bathsheba is the innocent victim in all of this. And I wonder if that surprises you. I wonder if it surprises you that The kind of misogynistic behavior that you're hearing about every day on the news isn't really new at all. It's been going on for a long time. And that an innocent woman's reputation has been smeared throughout history by the actions of a powerful man who wanted to use her only for sex. Does that surprise you? It's amazing how relevant the Bible is. Well, things go from bad to worse for Bathsheba. In the verses that follow, David tries to cover this whole thing up. He sends for Uriah, her husband, to be brought to him from the battlefield. And he tries his best to get Uriah to go home and sleep with Bathsheba so that David will have plausible deniability. The problem is that Uriah is such an honorable man, such an honorable soldier, such a principled man, that he will not sleep in the comforts of his home or even sleep with his wife while his men are out on the battlefield. David even tries to get him drunk so that he'll go home and sleep with his wife, but Uriah won't have it. And so watch this. The text says that the next morning, verse 14, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. That's cold, man. That is cold. And that is indeed what happens to Uriah. He is killed in battle. And Bathsheba becomes a a widow, a single mother. See, this isn't about Bathsheba's guilt. This is about David's guilt. And that's the reason, you see, that Matthew doesn't mention her name in in Jesus' genealogy. He wants to point the finger at the guilty party, David, not Bathsheba. Now, that's why Matthew doesn't include her name the question is, why does he include her story just before the Christmas narrative? Why does he even include this? What does Matthew want us to learn about Christmas from the reference to her story here? I want to suggest to you three things. That he wants, to, wants us to see the shock of sin, the hope of grace, and then finally the cost of grace. The shock of sin, the hope of grace, and finally... The cost of grace. Let me start with this. Let me start with the shock of sin. This story really does feel like it could be the storyline to next season's House of Cards on Netflix. At least if Kevin Spacey hadn't messed the whole thing up. A powerful politician abuses his power to sleep with a woman. And then he tries to cover it all up by killing her husband. Now, if we didn't know the name of the powerful politician here, we, I, I think we probably really wouldn't be very surprised by this story at all, would we? I mean, this kind of abuse of power happens all of the time. I think, though, that what makes this story so shocking is that all of this is done by a man whom God called a man after his own heart. That's shocking, isn't it? I think that's what makes this story so shocking. You need to understand something. If you come to the Bible thinking that it is full of inspirational stories filled with moral examples for you to imitate, a story like this is absolutely confounding. You're like, wait, what am I supposed to do with this? There's nothing good here to imitate. See, It'll really confuse you if you come to the Bible that way. On the other hand, if you come to the Bible, understanding that the Bible isn't, it's not not that. What what it is is, it's a book about how much human beings need God to save us from our brokenness and corruption. And if you come to it that way, then this story makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Here's a story about a man who is highly esteemed by God, who is a man after God's own heart, and even he is broken and corrupt. He commits adultery. He kills the husband in a cover-up. And oh, and there's, there's one other thing that you didn't see that I didn't mention earlier. David's also, besides being an adulterer and a murderer, David is a racist. It's very subtle. If you go back through this afternoon, if you go back and read this passage all the way through, you'll notice that every time the narrator refers to Uriah, he just calls him Uriah. But every time David refers to Uriah, he calls him Uriah the Hittite. Did you notice that? Why does David do that? Why does he always refer to him as Uriah the Hittite? Well, it's a racial slur. Uriah wasn't Jewish. He he converted to Judaism, but he's a minority in Israel. I think this is how David justifies his actions in this story. It's like he says to himself, it's okay that he has this man's wife. It's okay that he even has this man killed because he's just a Hittite. And nobody cares about Hittites. And what's she doing marrying a Hittite anyway? Jewish women and Hittites don't belong together. It's unnatural. That's what David thinks. This is racism. Plain and simple. And what makes it so shocking is that this is a man after God's own heart. But you have to understand that the Bible isn't a book about inspirational moral stories so that you will know, written so that you will know how to live a good life and get God to bless you. That's not what the Bible is. It's a, it's a book that is intended to show you how badly all people, even a man who, call, who was called a man after God's own heart, all people need rescued. You need rescued from your corruption And your brokenness. And that's the shock of sin. That even a man after God's own heart could do this. And if he could do this kind of thing, then I promise that you could too. I certainly could. It's shocking, isn't it? To realize that you're capable of everything that David does here. And if you think that you're not capable of everything does David does here, you're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself. That's the shock of sin. Here's the second thing that we need to see in this story. And this is really, uh, man, i tell you what, as I was putting this together and I was thinking about this, it just... This is the thing that really blew me away the most about this story. And that is the hope of grace. The hope of grace. And you're like, well, where do you see hope or grace anywhere in this story? Well, it's in the next chapter, actually, in chapter 12. For a long time, it seems like David got away with this. In fact, publicly, David comes out smelling like a rose. Uriah's been killed on the battlefield, and so David selflessly takes the pregnant Bathsheba in, and he cares for her, and he makes her part of his family. I mean, his PR team did a heck of a job with that. But even though things on the outside all look good, we know from David's own hand that all of this was eating him up inside. Later he describes it in Psalm 32. He actually writes about what he was feeling during this period of time. And he says this, he says, when I kept silent, when I didn't, in other words, when I didn't own this, when I didn't tell anybody about this, when I didn't confess this, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand, he's speaking to God, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This is a man who feels God's conviction on his heart. And he's miserable. And so in an act of mercy, it really is mercy. God sends a prophet to David by the name of Nathan. Who very craftily breaks through David's self-deception and self-justification. And David ends up confessing everything he has done. And he repents of the atrocity of his sins. Now here's the thing that is quite remarkable. I think, if you, I think you would agree with me that if you were David and if you'd done everything that David had done, even though you came to a point that you owned it all and that you repented of it all, you confessed it before God, I think you would probably think to yourself that you would now be on, on God's plan B for your life, right? Like plan A for David's life was, was that he was to be the great king of Israel, uh, that the Messiah was going to come through David's line, he was going to be one of David's descendants, That was plan A. But after all of this, if you were David, wouldn't you think that you're no longer on plan A, that you've somehow disqualified yourself from God's best plan for your life, and that now you're on God's plan for people who screwed up their lives? Don't you think you'd feel that way? Well, get this. Every single one of God's promises to David still come through. David and Bathsheba this this unlikely relationship this relationship begun by David's victimization of Bathsheba his exploitation of his own power his using her for sexual pleasure these two people end up having a son named Solomon who is a great and wise king in and of himself, and sure enough, Jesus is the descendant of David through David and Bathsheba's son of Solomon. Let me show it to you again. It's in Matthew 1. We read it just a moment ago that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. God somehow takes all of the tawdry elements of this story, and in grace, he brings it all together. To bring about what he had always planned to bring about in David's life. That's the hope of grace, you see. That no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how badly you think you've messed your life up, God can take all of it, even the worst parts of your life that you're embarrassed about and you don't want anyone to know about. And he can bring it. He can bring about all that he always planned to bring about in your life. Through those very things. That's the hope of grace. For those of you who believe in him, you are always on plan A with God. You see, what most of us think, the way most of us think, and I think many of us have been taught this, frankly, in churches that we've attended, is that if we're good, God will bless us. If we're bad, God won't. If something good happens to us, it's because God blessed us for being good. If something bad happens to us, it's because God cursed us for being bad. But David's story disproves that altogether. God promises, listen to this, God makes all of those promises to God before any of this stuff in chapter 11 ever happens. Now if morality and goodness are the basis for God's blessings in our lives, wouldn't you think, that God would take it, have taken back all of his promises to David after all of this stuff that David's done. Wouldn't you think that? would you think he'd take it all back? But he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Because the basis of our relationship with God is not our goodness. It's not our performance. It is, and it always has been, God's grace. God gives us what we don't deserve when we believe in Christ through faith. And that's what this story is here to illustrate. The hope of grace. What have you done? Like some of you, this morning, you're here and... Like you're thinking to yourself, but that can't be true. I I, I had an abortion years ago. Or you're thinking to yourself, you know, I I caused a divorce. I committed adultery. I broke up my family. I spent some time in jail. God says, here's the hope of grace. I'll take all of that. I'll weave it all together. And I'll accomplish in your life what I always plan to accomplish. You're still on plan A. That's the hope of grace. But that leads me to my third and and final point. And that is the cost of grace. How can God do that? How can he bless David when David has done so much evil? How can he he work all of this together for good? Why doesn't he take all of these promises away from David? You know, I hear people say this all the time. Maybe maybe you've heard people say it. Maybe you've read it before. Uh, People often say that their God, they'll say, you know, my God is, is good. My God is loving. He doesn't judge people. He's only loving, and so he doesn't judge. But every time I hear it, I want to scream. Don't you understand that a God who doesn't judge isn't good at all? I want you to just imagine for a moment, and maybe this isn't imagination for some of you. Maybe you, some of you have experienced it. Imagine that a drunk driver plows into your car and your daughter is killed. Drunk driver's arrested, he's charged, he's sent to trial when he comes before the judge, the judge says, listen, I never judge people's behavior because that would be unloving, so I find you to be innocent and you're free to go. How would you feel about that? Would you think of him as loving? Would you be satisfied with that verdict? Oh, no, of course not. See, God can't be loving if he isn't just. Sin has to be punished. Someone has to pay the price. In this particular story, after David confesses his sin, God forgives him. But God tells him that the cost of his forgiveness is the life of the baby that Bathsheba is pregnant with. And so not only does Bathsheba become as a result of David's victimization of her, and exploitation of her, not only does she become a widow, but she also becomes... the mother of a child who dies. David's sin cost the life of his child. I said a few minutes ago that the Bible isn't a book of inspiring moral stories. I said that it's a book that's intended to show you how badly you need rescued from your own corruption and your own brokenness. But that's only half of it. Here's the other half. The other half of the Bible's purpose is to point you to Jesus, who is the only one who can rescue you from your sin. The Bible, you see, isn't about David. It's not about Moses. It's not about the Apostle Paul. It's not even about you. The Bible is about Jesus. Everything in it is to point you to Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, is the truth to which all of the stories of the Bible and all of the stories of history point. Here's David, the king of Israel, he abuses his power for his own selfish interests. Here's Jesus, another king of Israel. He has all of the power of the universe at his disposal. But Jesus' kingship is different than David's in that Jesus uses his power not for his own selfish interests, but he uses his power to serve people. In 2 Samuel 11, David's baby has to die to pay for David's sin. But in the Christmas story, God the Father's child is born to pay for our sins. That's the cost of grace. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the cost. Those of you who have believed in Jesus' death on the cross here this morning, you've made that decision at some point in your life. You've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but... But you think that your standing before God now depends all about your performance. You were saved by grace, but but man, you you live your life on this roller coaster that God loves you, God hates you. God loves you, God hates you. And it's all based on your performance. You need to understand this morning that your standing before God depends only on the cross of Jesus Christ, not your performance. That's grace. And the cost of grace was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's time for you to get off the roller coaster of performance that you're living on and experience peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you're a very moral person. Maybe you think of yourself as a very good person. Let the shock of sin drive you to the cross, and I want you to rest in the cross of Christ. Believe in him today. Don't let another moment go by. Your morality isn't going to save you. If David was broken and corrupt, you are too. And let the shock of sin drive you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Rest in the cross of Christ. And finally, those of you who think this morning, that you're just too ruined for God to love, that you've done things so awful that God could never love you, would you just consider that this story of David's sin against an innocent woman and her husband is included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Why? To tell you that Jesus was born to die not only for the Bathshevas of the world, but also for the Davids of the world who have victimized, exploited and oppress them. That's what the story of Christmas is. That there's hope for every single one of us. The cost of that hope was the death of the baby who was born into a manger Christmas morning. That's the cost of grace. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Maybe you fit into one of those three categories that I mentioned earlier. Maybe you've believed in Christ, but you live your life thinking that, you know, like it's like on a roller coaster. Would you just, this morning, would you just affirm that your relationship with God isn't based on your performance, it's on the cross of Christ, and would you just rejoice in that? Would you rest in that? Maybe you're person who's here today, and you came here thinking, man, I'm a really good person, and I'm so glad I'm a good person, and, and I know God loves me because I'm a good person. Would you just let the shock of sin drive you to the cross? You're a sinner. I am a sinner. David was a sinner. We all are sinners. You need Jesus. Maybe you're a person here today who thinks, you know, you've done so many things, so so wrong that God could never love you would you just in this moment would you just bring all of that to the cross of Christ and recognize that Jesus died for you and believe in him don't let another moment pass Lord Jesus we worship you this morning oh my the hope of grace just I mean it 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 lifts our hearts it's too good to be true. But then we recognize that, that there was an enormous cost to it. That you were born to die so that we would not have to, so that we would not have to pay the, the price for our own sins. But that you, God's Son, would die for us. That's the cost. Lord Jesus, we worship you for using your power to serve. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray.